Good morning. So today's reading is from Revelation chapter 7, uh, verse 9 to 17. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the fallen creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them in white and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Well, uh, it's wonderful to be with you. Uh, Thank you, Colin, for the invitation. And uh, what we're going to look at in this sermon is the question, where are we up to with Global Mission? We're going to look at it from three angles that I'll tell you about in a minute. Uh, But before we do, let's just bring our hearts and minds to God again and just ask for his insight and inspiration. Our Father, we do pray as we think about your word and about what you've done in the world and what you're doing in the world, that you would please work in us, encourage us, and inspire us by your vision for a world that knows Jesus. Amen. Well, that, um, that vision statement, uh, it's there on our, um, on our banner, and we talk about it a lot, just because we want to keep reminding ourselves, a world that knows Jesus, that's what we would love to see. It's quite a bold vision, don't you think? In a former life, I used to work for a company and one of our clients was um, Coca-Cola in Fiji. So I got to go on this trip to, to Fiji one time and, and that was pretty cool. Um, the, the runway on, in Fiji, I don't know if you've ever landed on the runway, it's got a great big scoop in the middle of it. And when I was um, taking off, they had the door open at the front. Anyway, and I could see this big scoop in the runway. Anyway, that actually is not in my script. I must keep moving. The reason I'm telling you about this is that when, the, when we went to Coca-Cola, we found out that their vision statement was a can of Coke in the hand of every Fijian. That's a good idea, isn't it? Um, I prefer CMS's vision, and you know, CMS, but CMS's vision is, is similar in a way, isn't it? Everybody in the world, in some way, know Jesus or have heard of his name and had the opportunity to respond to him. What would it take, you reckon? I'm not talking about the cans of Coke. What would it take for a world that knows Jesus? How would you evangelize the whole planet? Some of you may be thinking the preacher's lost the plot. Are you kidding? Is this the real world that we are planning to evangelise? Others will say, actually, 
that's a bit offensive going and you know telling everybody your vision for the world but what about Jesus what did he say about world evangelization a verse in Matthew chapter 24 verse 14 Jesus says this gospel this news of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come it's interesting isn't it it's a word of prophecy Jesus is saying the whole world will be evangelized and only then will I return so first world evangelization then the end of the world if we're looking for a crystal ball to try to work out you know how what does the future look like Jesus is telling us that this is what's going to happen now there's a risk that we can see this as our mission that it depends on us and that he won't come back until we do our job I don't think that's really what it's getting at but what it is saying is that although it doesn't depend on us to make this happen it does involve us he wants us to participate but will we will we see this as our agenda as well so that's the starting point for this talk we're asking the question where are we up to with mission Uh, if we know where we're up to if we want to know where we're up to we sort of need to know where we've come from and where we're going to so I'm going to ask the question in three ways where are we up to in the bible story where are we up to in world history and where are we up to as a church here at Woodcroft what does it look like for us to be seeking this world that knows Jesus so the bible world history and then our church where are we up to in the bible's story God's mission actually starts in Genesis, doesn't it? Right back in the beginning, because the whole Bible is the account of God's mission in some ways. It's to create and to restore and to perfect creation, and particularly humanity's role in it. But there is a very significant point in the Bible where we step right into the centre of this mission, And I think it's really from the book of Acts onwards. Because at that point, there is a handover at the beginning of Acts and the end of the Gospels. There is a handover from God the Son, who's present in the world, and he started this new age through his death and resurrection, a handover to God the Holy Spirit, who then takes that message about God the Son, and he energizes and equips the church, that's us, to bear witness to that message to the ends of the earth and so we actually step into the bible's picture and you'll see yourself in that picture in just a moment in the book of acts taking the message of god the son to the whole world begins in an explosive way as we'll see but then from Acts, let's wind forward to the other end, to the end of the Bible's picture, the book of Revelation. And, and where's this all heading? Well, we heard from Revelation 7 verse 9, the Apostle John saw a vision of the end. And as he reports it, he says, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. You can imagine an uncountable multitude, can't you? Just imagine it going forever from every nation and every tribe and people and language all standing before the throne 
and before the Lamb. And they're all wearing the same thing. White robes. And they're all holding palm branches in their hands. And they're crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's a great picture and it's a picture of the actual future. And the key thing is that world evangelization has happened at this point. The gospel has gone to the nations, as Jesus predicted, and now the end has come. All people from every nation, tribe and tongue are present. And you are there, right? You're in amongst them. You've got a white robe on, you've got palm branches in your hand. And as you look around you, there are people from Afghanistan and from North Korea and from Eritrea and Iran. And and they're all around you. And you're all rejoicing with them at Jesus' glory and his grace. But what's happened between these two bookends? What has actually happened? How did it go from 120 believers in Acts in Jerusalem to every people group on the earth being represented? Two things must have happened. Firstly, a multitude of people must have heard the gospel of Jesus. In that story, uh, you may recall that one of the elders asks John, who are these in white robes? And where did they come from? And John's saying, oh, well, you tell me, I've got no idea. And so the elder says, they're the ones who've come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now, since when do you wash clothes and they come out in blood and they come out white? Now, this is not cleaning tips, of course. This is, don't try this. <laughs> This is the cleansing from guilt that you and I receive through Jesus' death and through believing in the message about Jesus' death and trusting in that message and trusting in him. You wash your heart in Jesus' blood and God will see it as perfectly pure. You wash your mind in Jesus' blood and God will see it as perfectly clean. That's what the gospel tells us. Now, this isn't the sort of idea you can work out on your own. It's actually counterintuitive. In fact, you may feel that depending on someone else's death for your cleansing is an awful thought. Depending on another person to make me innocent. In fact, that person dying as a result of my sin. And I'm not that bad, am I? Now, the gospel tells me that, yes, I am. The the only reason that Jesus' blood was shed was for human sin. Can you think of another reason why God the Son would actually take human flesh and allow himself to be brutally executed for sin when he hadn't committed sin? Why would God... What is Jesus doing on the cross? There is no reason for that other than what the gospel tells us, that it is for the cleansing of sinners. The key thing is, if that group... That group must have heard that gospel message of Jesus because they are standing there cleansed. If they hadn't heard and believed that message, they would not be cleansed by the blood. Second thing that must have happened for this assembly to have occurred is that the gospel must have gone to the far ends of the earth. Christianity is not white. 
It is multicultural, and it's much more multicultural than anything we could imagine, any church that we've ever been to. But how did it get multicultural? There's only one way it could get multicultural, because there's nothing accidental about that. For this multitude to be multicultural, the message must have gone cross-cultural. Because culture isn't simple. You don't accidentally cross cultures. If, if that was the way cultures were crossed, then eventually what would happen is all cultures would sort of dissolve and blend into one another, but they don't do that, do they? Even when people come to Australia from other cultures, there's still, it's, it's not a straightforward process, is not There is a blending together in some ways, but there is, there is still a distinction. Unless there is intention... We stay in our comfort zones. We stay in our own cultures. We don't easily understand other cultures. And maybe we see them as a novelty. Or maybe we use that horrible word foreign. These are from foreign cultures. Other. Outside. Sometimes it's even worse. Sometimes we hate other cultures. And racism has led to terrible injustice. But the reality is, if this picture of, multi, of the multicultural gathering tells us anything, it tells us that throughout the history of the church, missionaries must have been sent. Cross-cultural workers are necessary for the fulfillment of God's plan. Missionaries must be sent for God's plan to be fulfilled. It's not a kind of optional part of it. It's not a kind of an interesting part of it. It's fundamental to God, to Jesus' prophecy being fulfilled that missionaries are sent by the church. Now you may say, hang on, aren't the other nations coming to us? And that's true in some ways. We do actually have a very multicultural society in Australia. Twice as many people um, in Australia are born overseas as in England or the US. We have a very multicultural um, society. But it is just a drop in the bucket. The bucket is the rest of the world. It's just a small number here. And you know what? It would be great if um, those who came to us uh, became convicted of the gospel and returned home as effective evangelists to their own cultures because there are actually limited ways for some of the cultures of the world to be reached. But it doesn't happen very often You may say, but hang on, haven't you mission agencies heard of the internet? Um, Can't you just, you know, put the message... Surely people can just Google, uh, how can I be saved on the internet? But you realise, don't you, that in most languages of the world, you Google that and you won't find anything. We need to go to the nations, one way or another... We need to think of ways of connecting with the reaches of humanity. And we need to stay long enough for locals in that country to believe that message, for their own indigenous church to grow, to become capable of sharing the gospel itself without the need for missionaries, and then for that church to grow. We don't want to go over and be the centre of attention. We want to go over and see God at work um, growing the local church. So God sends missionaries. How else do we move from Acts to Revelation? Yes, we're all involved in mission locally mission is from everywhere to everywhere 
But just that idea of mission is actually the idea of sending to other communities. And they might be other communities locally, but it's also other communities in other parts of the world. So where are we up to in the Bible's picture? Well, I guess we're in the middle somewhere. The church has sent some missionaries, but there are still many, many unrepresented nations, tribes, and people groups and language groups. So now is the time for sending more. Which brings us to question two. Where are we up to in world history? Uh, in a moment, I've got some graphics, but for now, just, we could just do a quick survey of 2,000 years. Because numbers tell a powerful story. I'm getting my statistics from a book called The Future of the Global Church by Patrick Johnston. He's the one who came up with the Operation World Resource. So in Acts 1, there are 120 believers. By Acts 4, there are 5,000. That's a big growth, isn't it? By the end of the first century, there may have been as many as 1.4 million Christians in the world. That's about 0.8% of the world's population not bad for 60 years but check out where it goes next slide one thanks by the year 200 it was 4.8 percent of the world sorry 4.7 percent of the world's population by 300 7.5 percent by 400 13.4 by 500 one in five people on the earth were christian now were they all mature disciples i doubt it in our own country, just because someone puts Christian on the census doesn't mean they necessarily have saving faith. But it does mean that in Australia the gospel has been extensively preached. And so we're not called an unreached people group. We're not a gospel poor nation. We're gospel rich. And remember that Jesus didn't say that the whole world would be Christian. He said that the message about the gospel would go to the whole world. Anyway, what happens next? Next slide, please. World population begins to increase significantly uh, and the number of Christians stays roughly the same. Uh, and so there's, a, and there's the spread of Islam and the number of... Um, yeah, so the percentage drifts down. There is a spike in the 13th century connected with the Mongol Empire. Incidentally, that spike is also a spike in the number of Christian martyrs. It, it multiplied many, many, many fold in that century. But don't focus too much on that. The, the gradual increase then happens post-reformation in the 16th century and uh, until slide three the incredible 19th century look at that 19th century that's amazing massive explosion in mission activity throughout the 1800s by 1900 45,000 protestant missionaries who are at work in the world multiple spiritual awakenings around the world by 1900 christianity represented 34.4 percent of the world's population one in three humans so what was going to come next that's the question but before we go there a friend recently forwarded me a great gospel coalition article by douglas a sweeney and the article was called when did evangelicals stop caring about missions <laughs> ouch uh, that's a confronting uh, title but Sweeney points to the world being poised for an incredible 20th century this was going to be the Christian century I mean where do you go next Whoosh, surely it was going to be the golden age of world Christianity but what happened two world wars dozens of genocides 
massive population growth in various parts of the world, an increase in Islam in Asia and Africa, 45 million Christian martyrs, along with a devastating decline in Christian commitment in Europe, followed by the rest of the West. And so if you just look at the, the Northern Hemisphere, um, really known as the West, between those two dates, 1900 and 2000, Christianity went from representing 82% of the population to 41 cut in half in the West. What happened to overall percentages for the whole world? Let's go to the next slide. This shows the whole period and you can see what happened there in the 20th century. Interesting, isn't it? It didn't rise. It fell, but only slightly. And today it's around 32%. It's still the world's largest religion. So what happened? We're in this post-Christianity. Why haven't the numbers dropped further? You know, why hasn't it gone back right down to sort of halfway or something like that? Well, because... Of the global south. You've heard of the global south? Well, in several regions of the world, especially in Asia, Africa, and South America, Christian faith grew from nearly 18% of the population to 59% over that period. Massive, massive growth. Very, very fast growth. The 20th century saw this incredible growth in the church in many of the poorest parts of the world that in some ways offsets the massive exodus from nominal Christian faith in the West. So where does it leave us today? Where are we up to in world history? What do you think? What's the 21st century going to look like? We're a fifth of the way through it. Surely this is the time to engage in cross-cultural discipleship and evangelism. Surely there's something going on here that the Holy Spirit is doing that we want to be part of, we want to help it. You know, surely we in the West will see the huge opportunities for ministry in the parts of the world that are responding to Christianity. Purdy's, Chile, for example. Surely we will share our resources. We have a massive heritage of English language theological resources and training expertise. Surely we share that with the church that's growing so fast that in some areas it can't keep up with itself. It doesn't have leaders, doesn't have enough leaders trained to be able to lead all the churches that are being planted. Now you might say, hang on. We don't want to be abandoning the West, do we? What about our friends and neighbours? Do we just give up and focus everything overseas? No, of course we don't. Every church must witness to its own communities. God still has great plans for Australia. People are still coming to faith. Don't be afraid just because... Don't be afraid of census figures. But God's concern is for the whole world. And all the culture crossing that needs to happen this century for the world to hear about Jesus. Now is the time to be sending missionaries. The harvest is ripe. And so as Jesus tells us, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Which brings us to our concluding question. Where are we up to as a church? I am so encouraged that 
Thank you, you can take that down now, thanks. I'm so encouraged that we are here partnering with the Purdies. What a great video to give you a sense of you know, where they're up to and what some of their current needs are. It's only a new partnership. Um, but you know, where are we up to as a church? What does it look like for you personally? Are you connected with them in some way yet? Yes, you can be connected through the church and through what happens from the platform here, but you can also connect personally, get those things straight to your inbox and so on. Do you see the South American Christians in that gathering in Revelation 7? As you look around, can you see the Chileans and the Argentine people and the, the Uruguayans and the rest? You can't see their faces, but you and I are there with them. And they'll be there because of the work God has been doing through missionaries. But here's the thing. We don't send missionaries just off to fend for themselves. We send them in partnership. We maintain the connection between the sent and the senders. We partner with them with our love and with our prayers and with our funding. CMS talks about pray, care, give, go. Have you heard that expression? Pray, care, give, go. Pray for missionaries, care for missionaries, give for missionaries, and go and put your hand up to be a missionary. So the final, final thing we're going to do is to look at each of those four briefly. Firstly, pray. Do you pray for missionaries? Obviously, we pray from the platform, but what about private devotions? Is that something you could, you could do or something you already do? Do you, you know, one of the things we should be doing in our private devotions is to be asking God for his kingdom to come, uh, to pray for the countries that missionaries are serving in, the work they're doing, for their provision, for their work, for their protection, for the work of the Holy Spirit in the, amongst the people that they're ministering with. It's a crucial time for Malcolm and Ainsley at the moment, language learning, relationship building and visas they're the key three things really language learning um, relationship building including for the kids and visas uh, you do pray for the kingdom don't you now I, I know that it can be a lot of the time we, we want to pray for the things in our own lives sometimes we pray for the things that make us comfortable you know okay but I think God wants us to pray for the kingdom as our driving concern because that's his driving concern secondly care about a year ago my own church at Kern Lake Gardens um, I had the opportunity to interview um, NNR at the end of their 11 years of service overseas we're on the platform I asked them you know we're about to take on the Purdies because we're partnering with them as well um, as new missionaries and you guys have been our um, our missionaries so you know I th what would what advice would you give us as we take on new missionaries and I'm thinking they're going to say okay pray lots give lots of money blah 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 but you know what they said love them so that was coming from the horse's mouth care about them because mission overseas is really hard they're going as representatives of our part of their partner churches their lives are turned upside down by this culture crossing. They need our care, our love. It's not just a nice thing. So how can we be showing love to them in this tricky time? 
Well, you can start by subscribing for their, to their partnership updates, their prayer letters. Uh, and that's very easy just through our website. Um, and, you know, when you get those partnership updates, just hit reply, even just a sentence or two uh, of encouragement. Do it regularly. Build a relationship with them. Don't necessarily expect a reply to every single message, but let them know that you are there with them in spirit. And take an interest in Chile. That's another way of caring for your missionaries. Look it up um, on Google or Wiki, or I have on my phone the Operation World app. And that's a really great resource because you can look up a country and you can find out the stats about, you know, how many people believe in Christ, what's the standard of living, all those kind of interesting questions to help your prayers. So love the people uh, of the country as well as the missionaries. Thirdly, give. I was talking to a friend recently who, whose job is in this area of ministry fundraising. And you might think, I can't think of anything more awful than to be involved in fundraising. Um, but this friend, she's actually pretty energized by it. She loves her job because she sees it as a tangible expression of people's faith. If people believe that gospel ministry is important, then their giving proves it. And she loves to see that. In the West, we might be time poor, but we're not money poor. I know, groceries are ludicrously expensive. Everything seems to be going up. I realise that. But if we've got money in our bank accounts, then we have money. We may feel we don't have enough, but we do actually have money. She said the other day to me, why do we keep saying, nothing in my hand I bring? You've heard that expression? Nothing in my hand I bring. And we were thinking about it. I, th- I think it comes from that old hymn. You know the hymn, Rock of Ages? There's that verse that says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to him for dress. And so on it, it goes. And, but the, that hymn isn't talking about this sort of thing. That hymn's talking about whether I um, come to God proud of my own um, righteousness or something and saying, look God, see what I've done. And the gospel says, no, 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 don't do that. But none of us could actually think of a place in the Bible where it actually says to come to God empty-handed. Can you think of one? I, I, come and talk to me afterwards if you can. It actually says the opposite. The, the day after I was having this conversation, I was reading the scriptures and happened to come across Exodus 34, where God says, no one is to appear before me empty-handed. And then a few verses down, bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Sending missionaries is expensive. You know, I'm sure that CMS could save some money if we cut back on caring for our missionaries, but we don't want to do that. Our missionaries' standard of living is already modest. The Purdies do have a good amount of funding already, but they aren't fully funded yet they're still subsidized by some other giving and that's going to take a bunch of people from their partner churches to commit to regular giving we suggest 35 dollars a month but it really is entirely up to individuals the question i think is for every christian is are you putting your finances to work now you've heard that expression i know and normally when we hear it 
what it means is uh, putting it to work to make it earn more money. Are you putting your money to work to make it earn more money? But here we're talking about putting money to work for the kingdom of Jesus. Giving to the local church, giving to the poor, and giving to global mission. And fourthly and finally, pray, care, give, go. This is the uh, uncomfortable conversation. Anyone ready to go and become a missionary? Uh, Not a lot of people are lining up to go on mission in the circles that I'm moving in. I do have a list of names of people in the pipeline, but it's not lots of names. What about this church? Have a look around. Who could we send? Um, This is also known as Dob in a Mate. (laughs) Um, you, You know, I don't want it to get too uncomfortable now, but I think this is a process for us to be doing in an ongoing way. You know, this might be a question for you personally, but it might also be a question for the church generally. Who might we be willing to send? Who might be willing to put their own hand up to go? Could this be a prayer goal? You might say, you know... We're not that big. I mean, who could it possibly be? But why not pray that God lays it on your hearts as a congregation? Who might go? What about a 12-month goal to to pray that and see what God says? And, of course, if you're the one to go, then at some point you might need to put your hand up and say, I'd like to find out more and see if this is the Lord's calling on my life. And if you don't go overseas, you may find yourself going Uh, somewhere in Australia that's remote or you might find yourself just doing something that's a little bit difficult locally but where are we going to go? If you'd like to talk about global mission I'd love to catch up with you and I won't pressure anybody uh, because God will enable what God wants and that's a good place for us to wind up with this question is global mission a hobby of God's? You know, something that he does on the side when he's not doing other things, like answering our prayers for, you know, comfort. (laughs) Maybe it's his full-time job. Or maybe it's even more than that. Maybe it's his entire agenda because God never sleeps. Mission is everything to God. And to our Lord Jesus Christ, who died and rose again. And to the Holy Spirit, who's amongst us. Mission is everything to God. It's the extension of God into the world. It's an extension of his love. That the world might see his love. An extension of his mercy. That the world might know that he wants to forgive sinners. This is his heart. He wants the world to see his heart. And stop pretending that he is something else. No, this is the true God, the God of mission. Mission is the extension of God's wisdom, that he knows what the world needs. The world needs a saviour and Jesus is the only saviour. Mission is an extension of his perfect righteousness because we must be purified to live in God's fellowship forever. It's an extension of his glorious vision for humanity He wants much more for us than we could ever imagine. And that's what mission is all about. And so, when we pray, our Father in heaven, let your kingdom come. 
think about God's heart for mission. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray, let your kingdom come. Here in Woodcroft and surrounds, Adelaide and regional South Australia and Australia, but also to the, to the far corners of the earth. Let your kingdom come in the unreached, gospel-poor parts of the world. Let your kingdom come in the parts of the world where the gospel has grown so fast, but they need people to go and teach in theological colleges and other places. Let your kingdom come through us as we participate in this global mission agenda of yours. Let your kingdom come through our, our prayers and through our care, through our giving, and through our going. Our Father, we pray that you would do your work amongst us, raise up workers for the harvest, and enable us to be part of that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.